This is episode number 8 with Prantik Mazumdar, Managing Director of Dentsu CXM and Angel Investor. Welcome to the Masters of Cashflow podcast. My name is Andrew Senduk, a former banker turned tech entrepreneur. And in each episode, I interview the movers and shakers of the venture capital and investment space in Southeast Asia, with the only goal to help you discover how to raise more capital, build better companies, and to give you a better understanding of the people behind the biggest funds in the region. Thank you so much for spending time with me today. Now let's get started. All right, beautiful people, welcome to a new episode. Um, I am uh, I'm excited. I'm always excited to have like new guests, but I'm specifically excited for today because um, uh, Prantik Mazumdar is in the building, is on the screen. And uh, I was just saying pre-interview that we've known each other since 2015, uh, but it's always been virtual, actually. It's always been virtual. Uh, back then, uh, we, uh, we got in touch through our uh, role in the digital board of Time International. Um, but um, it's good to, to have you on the show, man. I want to give you a quick intro. There's a lot of things that you've done in your career, uh, but I want to highlight a few. Um, you started actually with an internship in the consulting side uh, with Accenture. Uh, after that, you've done different, different things, but I think the, the, the highlights really, Happy, Happy Marketeer has been a really a key element within your career. Uh, 2019 Happy Marketeer, which is a performance digital agency, uh, was acquired by Dentsu. Uh, which was an, uh, an amazing acquisition, I think, also for, for the agency space. Uh, and since then, you've been really active as an angel investor. Um, you are LP of, of different funds, of, uh, of Quest Ventures, of uh, Health X Capital. Uh, and at the same time, you are still MD at Dentsu, specifically in the CXM group, which is really uh, focused on the customer experience uh, within Dentsu group. Prantik, I'm so happy to see you, man. How's, how's life? So good to catch up with you. I wish I was in Bali in person and we could be doing this over a drink yeah. at a sunset somewhere in Seminyak. But hopefully soon. No, life is good. Touch wood, you know, to be honest, just the fact that uh, me and my immediate family, we are in Singapore, that already is a blessing mm. as I was sharing with you. Of course, we are in a semi-lockdown for another few weeks, but compared to especially my, my family, my colleagues back home in India, uh, where things are far tougher and you yeah. know, compared to many other parts of the world. So that way life is good. I think we are, as you said, it's been two years since we sold Happy Marketer to Denso International. We are, of course, on an earn out. So my day job is very much at Denso. Uh, but it's a very interesting experience to kind of transition from a entrepreneur or founder of an independent agency, moving to a larger network, seeing the magic of larger groups. At the same time, kind of keeping my toes dipped into uh, the startup ecosystem, into the VC space, that kind of keeps you fresh as well. So touch wood, it's a very interesting uh, point of time in life. It's amazing, man. It's amazing. I mean, with, uh, with a lot of respect and um, interest, I've been following kind of like the journey. Uh, of course, I've, I've known of Happy Marketeer since 2015, while we were meeting uh, during the, the board meetings there. But I think it's a really an amazing achievement, uh, what, what you guys have done. You know, and being acquired by a, such big, big of an agency group is amazing. And, and I think today, you know, as we just kick it off today, I think the, the interesting journey that you've gone through is really going from, from, uh, going from entrepreneur to investor. I think that's the one that we want to uh, dig deep, deeper in today, right? Maybe walk us through a bit about that journey from, you know, building Happy Marketeer to this, let's say, momentum, being acquired, and then stepping into that, you know, dipping into that investment space. I don't know. Did you do any angel investments pre pre the exit or, or was it something that is really new to you as well during the last couple of years? 
No, very new. To be honest, pre-2019, before the exit, all my eggs were in one basket called Happy yeah. Marketing. Yeah. Uh, you know, so just as a quick backdrop of my life, first 13 years in India, then I spent the next uh, formative five years of my life in Jakarta. I loved it. I did my high schooling from uh, Gandhi in Jakarta. And then I came to uh, Singapore to do my bachelor's at NUS. And after my computer science degree, I worked for the Singapore government, a couple of stints in two SMEs, and then a 10-year journey uh, at Happy Marketer. Ideally, you know, I would have loved it had I done some sort of investment in my early days. But, you know, I think I had a pretty good fun wild ride where pretty much every dollar that came in uh, went out somewhere. I don't know where. But uh, no, to your question, I think, you know, uh, the first angel investment check that I ever got or any sort of uh, structured investment that I've done was post-exit because, to be honest, I had a bit of time, a bit of money. Yeah. I said, you know, I could kind of keep aside for angel investments because obviously in general, it's a high-risk category. So I think the first deal I did was probably in June, July 2019, but nothing before that. So it was, it was always a matter of interest because, you know, the last 10 years in Southeast Asia, in Singapore, I've just seen companies raise funds at insane valuations and as you and I were discussing, right? Yeah. Especially in the product phase. So I was all, I always wonder what does that world look like? And so then when I kind of had that exit, I said, look, it's time to kind of, I mean, there are two schools of thought. You could kind of do a lot of research, a lot of reading, or you could learn uh, on the job, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And a mentor of mine, he basically said, look, if you want to do this, uh, especially as a founder, he had a very good lesson because he's a founder turned entrepreneur and a VC now as well. He said, look, mm -hmm. what matters is, of course, the monetary aspect, but also as a founder in your own company, you had the levers of control. You know, the failure is yours, success is yours. But as a founder turned angel investor, once you cut a check, that's it. You know, uh, mm -hmm. you can sit, you, you don't have control. You've got to sit back, you can guide and help, you can coach and mentor but you don't really have much control or say. Yeah. So he said, look, try this out if, it, uh, if it's of interest and see how do you really feel about it? So I thought that was a very good lesson for me as I transitioned as a founder entrepreneur to an angel investor, just to see what does it feel like to be on the other side. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it sounds so simple, right? I mean, you have, a, you have a bit of liquidity, you have a bit of cash, you look at promising startups and you write your tickets, right? And it, I think a gut feeling is a big element in that. But if you look at, let's say, your time on uh, when building Happy Marketeer um, as, an, as a founder, as an entrepreneur, and now as an angel investor, like what, what are the similarities? What are the similarities that you look at before you write a check? Like, is it, are, or do you go through like a certain checklist that you made yourself? Or is it, is it very much a feeling uh, of the entrepreneur that you get? Like, what's kind of like your decision process when writing checks? Yeah, that's a critical one. So, you know, when I kind of got into this very soon, I realized that, to be honest, it was that there wasn't a shortage of deals. You know, every other day, there is someone or the other sending emails or LinkedIn messages saying, hey, okay. you know, I'm founding something, I have yeah. this idea, or I have a pilot proof of concept, what do you want to take a look? So I realized very soon that, wow, okay, because uh, initially, my, my fear was, wow, you know, would I have the opportunity to kind of build a portfolio? So that was one good lesson. Okay, that's great. So I need to kind of find some time and, you know, over the weekends or evenings to kind of just see through and filter out, right? So what I first did was I said, let me kind of uh, ask myself honestly, what are some sectors I want to be associated with? Mm. What are some sectors I think I understand uh, and I think I like? 
So I think I came to a quick answer to your point. You know, in Happy Marketer, we were a B2B company, right? We're an agency, we serve other businesses. Yeah. So I inherently have a bias or liking for B2B companies. So I said, you know, I'm going to look at B2B primarily. Uh, B, I was very sure that having been a, uh, a shareholder and a founder of a service-based business, I wanted to specifically look at non-service businesses mm. because, you know, that's where the potential, well, risk is, but also the scale. Yeah. So I said, look, services I have done myself, I want to look at products. So B2B products was a broad category. And then I said, what about in terms of region? So I'm not averse to any region, but I think uh, just, I suppose, uh, confirmation bias, if you will, my network happens to be in Singapore, Indonesia, India, and US. Yeah. So most of the deals that I've done, they are somehow linked to these regions. So many of the companies are registered in Singapore for tax reasons, yeah. but they serve Vietnam, they serve Indonesia, they serve India. Uh, so region-wise, I think those are three, four markets uh, that I was genuinely keen on. In terms of industries, I wanted to look at, there are three or four industries, which I think in the broader Southeast Asia or Asia uh, macro picture, I think they are at a good uh, zone at this point in time. And I have a bit of affinity. So clearly FinTech and InsureTech, of course, it's a very hot space. Valuations are high, mm. but that's a space, uh, you know, uh, especially InsureTech. There are a few deals that I've done in that space. Uh, then EdTech, but again, B2B, right? So all of these, I was very clear. I didn't want to necessarily go into B2C, D2C commerce-like place. So B2B EdTech, B2B InsureTech. Uh, then I also did some in health, health tech. So not in pharma, but specifically technology that can help hospitals and uh, medical professionals scale their businesses. My wife is a doctor, so we keep talking about that. So those were three sectors that we said, you know what, we'll primarily focus on this and also to some extent logistics, because I realized in Southeast Asia, last mile logistics is a big, big challenge. You know, mm. you take Indonesia, one of the largest archipelagos, it's so diverse, so large. How do you solve for that, right? Mm. So those were three, four areas uh, as another filter. And then I asked myself, what kind of, you know, in angel investing, it's so much about the founders or the founding team. And while there's a lot of literature around product market fit, I realized I had this affinity towards looking at founder product fit. Meaning to say, if I look at, uh, let's say person X, he could be a great founder, mm. but is he best suited to solve for the problem at hand? Yeah. Is yeah. he best suited for insurance? Maybe he's great for e-commerce or fashion, mm. right? Mm. So I wanted to really kind of spend some time and of course all of this could go wrong right but i wanted to spend them some time understanding the problem and the size of the problem and how uh, passionate are the founders or the founding team towards that do they have the pedigree do they have the passion mm -hmm. that was another layer that i looked at uh, in terms of founding team but having said that the other thing that really matters to me again if i wear my happy marketer hat is how flexible are the founders because you know in nine out of ten cases they are passionate about the problem, but very, very likely they have to make pivots every two, three you know, years, perhaps. Right? Yeah. We had to do it ourselves, from agency to consulting to training, uh, you know, whatever paid the bills. So I also wanted to see a judge how wedded are people to their specific idea. If they're too wedded and too emotionally invested, to me, that's a big risk, mm. meaning he or she may not want to pivot. Mm. So that's another layer that I looked at. And the last thing which... Uh, I don't think that was by design, but if I look back at the portfolio that I've built up over the last two years, 
I see a pattern that I have generally invested in older founders, or I should say more experienced founders. So not really by age, but people who have more experience who are doing this for the second or third time. Yeah. I suppose in a way that's, I guess I'm de-risking or hedging my bets yeah, yeah. that an experienced founder has kind of learned the rookie mistakes. Uh, not to say that young founders can't succeed. It's just a pattern that I've noticed yeah. in my portfolio. So yeah. yeah, those are, so I don't really go through a checklist, but these are broad five or six dimensions I try and study and, you know, when I interact with uh, the founders who kind of reach out to me. Yeah, that, that totally makes sense, right? So you have the, the geography, there's of course the, the market segment, and I think a big element, especially in this stage, is going to be the, I like it, the founder product fit, right? Is the founder actually good for the product or service that he's servicing or the market that he's servicing? Um, when it comes down, so, I think, so, so there's, let's say, the, the qualitative elements, right, in that. I think especially the, the founder product fit, I think that's also very, uh, it's qualitative, right? It's, 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 it's really understanding the, the, the passion and the drive of this entrepreneur uh, building a solution for a certain market. Where comes, let's say in your approach right now, where comes the quantitative part? Is there, is there a big quantitative part before you write the check? Or um, is, is, let's say, the majority of the decision based on the qualitative part? No, it's a good one. I think uh, quantitative makes a lot of <clears throat> sense and it's very important because uh, I, I don't think I have done a single deal which is pre-revenue. Uh, okay. I don't think I have that risk appetite yet. Yeah. Uh, I've only done post-revenue. And again, the revenue isn't massive. They're all anywhere between maybe 100K to a million at most. Yeah. Right. But what I look for there is what is the quality of that revenue? What is the quality of that quantity? Meaning, uh, let's say a company came to me, they were doing 500K of revenue. But when I done Annual deal, talking, right? Or talking monthly. Annual ARR. Yeah. yeah. Annual ARR. Yep. And what mattered to me is, sure, that's great. The fact that people are willing to open their wallets for your product, good sign. Mm. But A, who are the customers, mm. right? Because you could have many small SMEs or startups buying from you. But if, assuming, so I found out that 20% of their revenues come from two large insurance brands in the region. Mm. So that, that I, so happened that I happened to know them. So I could do a quick verification and validation with them. And the fact that they could... Because you know, each of these large customers, the sales cycle is long. Mm. So that also indicates that they've persisted, they've had multiple rounds, they've had to do vendor procurement. So it automatically kind of adds another layer of security. So the quality of the revenue in terms of who your customer is yeah. helps. Also, what really matters to me is recurring revenue. So did the customer buy only once or mm. has it come back mm. to you? So mm. you know, I would rather have uh, that 500K between three customers who have bought repeatedly or who have referred to you, uh, referred you to some other mm. peer, mm. that to me shows that there is repetitive, repetitiveness and you know uh, repeatability and scalability in the business as opposed to spraying and paying and getting 10 new customers, right? Because yeah. I know as a business owner that cost of acquisition is always, uh, nearly always high for a new customer. So you're absolutely right. The quantity matters, but the quality of the quantity perhaps matters a bit matters a bit more to me at that stage yeah i agree i agree i think especially when you talk about quality of of, of revenue i think when you talk about e-commerce let's say six years ago ten years ago maybe we got like the the superficial the superficial gmv the superficial revenue which yeah we, which which we all know it doesn't really make sense but that brings me to a really good topic right um investments versus trends 
Now, one of the things I always talk about with, with my guests is more about, okay, you know, all the investors, whether it's an angel or an institutional, they look for trends. Why do they look for trends? Because there's liquidity in trends. There's, there's buyers and there's sellers in trends. And when I say trends, I talk about market segments. I talk about specific solutions that are happening right now, whether it's a SaaS business, whether it's an e-commerce business, whatever it is. Um, but the danger with trends as well um, is um, that uh, with, with, any, with any trend, right? Trends can fade and, and co-working spaces were a trend as well. And uh, uh, WeWork was a trend as well. I mean, uh, apart from WeWork still being a billion dollar company, uh, but you know what I mean, right? So it, it's sometimes also a bit, bit, bit dangerous. What are your thoughts about, um, what are your thoughts about your specific investment strategy and looking at the trends or looking at what's happening amongst amongst VCs or amongst other angel investors? Like, how do you stay grounded to your own philosophy without being too carried away by what is quote unquote happening? Yeah, as you rightly said, trends can be dangerous because they create FOMO. And I've been seeing too many deals you know, just because of trends, uh, I've seen, you know, a couple of deals where a few of my VC friends have come in purely from a FOMO perspective that, man, I, I got to have a piece of this pie, right? Without head or tail. And, you know, I understand, right? When you're a very large fund, uh, maybe your risk appetite is large. Maybe you've already made some great investments and you know that there are four companies who are going to hit it out of the park. So you can play around a bit, right? As they say, in, in a fund, you need three or four to really do well. The rest can you know be somewhere in that continuum right yeah, yeah. but as an angel you have only that much capital to kind of mm. uh, you know build your portfolio and it's an individual effort i am you know it's not a syndicate right so <clears throat> trends are important and the way i look at trends is i break the trends i look at some global trends and i'll talk about you know what kind of are close to my heart mm. but i also break it down by geography as to in the geography that i'm interested are these trends too early are these trends already priced in, you know, I'm late in the game or, uh, you know, are these, do these trends really make sense? Right. Uh, so that's geography, uh, uh, geographical relevance is I think quite critical to me. And the other thing is I may have a point of view on trends, but I would also need to wait vis-a-vis -vis my risk appetite. Meaning, for example, I may back a trend of cloud computing, right. As a broad philosophy, but my gut feeling is, hey, you know what? A lot of that innovation has been happening in the US in the last 10 odd years. And I'd rather play in the public markets with, I don't know, Snowflake, with Salesforce, mm -hmm. with Oracle, Adobe, et cetera, uh, or Cloudera, et cetera. But what's already public. So one thing I've learned is I may like a trend, but depending on how I analyze it geographically, I then make a decision do I want to pursue this trend as an investor mm. and, you know, in a public market or a private market? Mm. Right? That's a first distinction. In fact, in your, one of your previous podcasts, I thought abs made a great point that a good business is not necessarily a good investment. Yes. And I think you really crystallize that feeling of mine that, you know, whilst I may back a trend, a business, I've got to be nuanced and careful as to, is this a good investment? Right. Mm. Uh, now let me get to specifics in Southeast Asia, like two trends, that I personally feel uh, that I may have already missed the boat, so to speak, is fintech and edtech, right? Mm. And when I say fintech and edtech, I'm talking about the large B2C, right? So if I look at the India in a geographical market, uh, for example, you know, you have Upgrab, you have Baiju's, you have Vedantu, mm. these are mm -hmm. private, but unicorns. 
Now, sure, I may have uh, pre-IPO opportunities that I look out for, but clearly I'm not going to be looking at early stage angel deals in B2C edtech in India, for example, right? Same with fintech in the payment remittance space. I think we have, uh, you know, dime a dozen players across Indonesia. You know, I wish I had the opportunity to get into Ajib, Ajib, Ajib. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, I, I kind of missed the boat. So I kind of weigh that down that, okay, fintech, edtech, definitely a trend for the next uh, five, 10 years from a consumption perspective. Mm-hmm. But as an investor, I felt maybe I'm a bit too late, right? Yeah. So now in terms of my investment lens, what I am looking at, again, very, very geography specific, right? So for example, I'll give you real examples. Uh, in Vietnam, I'm currently evaluating a, a pre-series C last mile logistics company. It's not an early stage, it's pre-series C, but mm-hmm. Vietnam, the market in general, the valuations relatively uh, yeah. are not extremely high. Mm-hmm. So from an investment, I thought the timing could be good. They are pre-series C and they are one of the leaders when it comes to B2B marketplaces and B2B delivery, right? So literally imagine it to be a, a DoorDash or a yeah. Dunzo yeah. of uh, Vietnam, right? Yeah. So in Vietnam, I'm backing the broader growth of Vietnam. And you know, with broader growth, you, know, you have e-commerce, ride-hailing, fintech, but the space I'm looking at in Vietnam is the B2B marketplaces and logistics. Uh, in Bangladesh, again, a very, very interesting economy, which has been kind of uh, not looked at very deeply, but I have a lot of love for that space for a couple of reasons. One is very few people know that my ancestors came from there. You know, back in the day, Bangladesh was part of the larger Indian continent. But apart from that, in South Asia, Bangladesh is the fastest growing economy. Their per capita income has now exceeded that of India's. Their socioeconomic indicators look to be very good. Mm. Uh, in fact, recently I also read that, you know, in terms of even uh, relative political stability and government friendliness towards deals, you know, they are going through a pretty good good phase. So I'm looking at, for example, similarly, I'm looking at two areas, logistics and also cloud kitchens. Mm. So I'm looking at these two opportunities because again, it's a market, 160 million people, food is a huge part of their culture. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, there are restaurants, etc. Just like you know, you have in Indonesia as well. A lot of similarities culturally as well. Uh, and cloud kitchens is a movement that's picking up, right? So I keep my thesis to B two B still intact. I'm looking at B two B cloud kitchens, uh, but cloud kitchens, logistics. Uh, the third bucket, for example, insurtech. I felt that insurance as an industry in general, globally and in our region, it's a it's a very archaic industry. You know, mm. if you think about it, no one wakes up in the morning to buy insurance. It's one of those amazing products that are sold through fear mm. that, oh, you know, you may die and what will happen to your family. So if I buy life insurance, the funny thing is I'm paying the premium, but I will never enjoy the benefits. Yeah. Hopefully my family does. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But as I speak to some of my happy marketer insurance clients, I realize that digital transformation is a huge part. So one of the challenges is not the distribution necessarily, but how do I engage my customers directly? Because no one's coming to the insurance websites to be engaged, right? Yeah. They only come on a need basis. So there are a few interesting insurtech players that I've backed in the recent past who are basically either gamifying uh, the health process. Yeah, so yeah. there is a company called Activo Labs, which is basically working with insurance brands to say, you know what, this is a bit like through my solution, your customers will get a health score across diet, exercise, sleep, et cetera. We will create content to keep them engaged. And by the way, the real benefit is 
through this you're able to separate your healthy cohort and your unhealthy cohort yeah so the healthy cohort you can reduce premiums the unhealthy depending on how unhealthy they are you could either kick them out or you could increase premiums right so <laughs> yeah 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 uh, going back to trends again separate i would always separate public versus private yeah. i would see if there are good deals in the public market because i've got to be honest they're liquid so for example another space bnpl right there's a huge movement of buy now pay later mm. and i'm evaluating some in fact i'm evaluating one uh, you know which is in the education space basically study now pay later which is interesting it's called edutinker indonesia philippines have a couple of players as well uh, but at the same time in the public market you have afterpay right mm. in the pre ipo you have a clarona so i do evaluate do i want to play in the public or private space mm. and then within the private space in my geography of comfort i look at these you know insurtech cloud kitchens logistics these tend to kind of suit me so as you notice it's not extremely futuristic of space yeah, yeah, yeah. or even ease yeah. i'm not there yet because yeah. uh, again I, i don't think at this juncture i'm looking at illiquid investments of up to 5 10 years exactly. i'm looking at hopefully exits in the next 3 to 5 years yeah. so it also depends on i suppose your risk appetite and yeah. uh, how much how illiquid investments are you willing to take bets on yeah and and how does it usually work like what what are the ticket sizes is it something you can like and share like a ticket size i don't know a general general ticket size for like an angel an angel uh, check like what is in your opinion kind of like the sure the size absolutely i can be candid about that to me it it ranges anywhere between typically my median would be somewhere between you know 30 to 50k mm, uh yeah. 30 to 50k is usually but you know what's interesting is there are uh that's the median but on the low end through some syndicates i've done deals at a 5 or 10k level as well yeah uh, so a syndicate's putting and you know you put 5 or 10k if you don't have enough convic- conviction right or if you don't have enough capital for yeah. that team on the other side i've been fortunate to do deals with uh, in parallel uh, with a couple of vcs uh, like jungle ventures they were very kind to kind of bring me in for a private deal that they were doing so i came in for that private placement uh, you know uh, alongside them and yeah. that was great learning because uh a of course the check size was higher because the minimums were higher so it was early six figures but the learning that when a vc does a deal versus an angel it was mind boggling because the terms and conditions the exactly. due diligence yeah uh it is insane and suddenly it kind of uh you know it kind of induces fear you're like wow uh you know when i'm doing uh, on an individual basis i have a day job i, I don't have a team exactly. or a capability or capacity to do proper yeah. due diligence yeah like you said there's so much Uh, riding on gut feeling and relationship mm. as well mm. but a vc it was a fantastic experience to see how professionally they would you know go to the investment committee present findings exactly, exactly. also what's very interesting is when they cut a check they are they do a lot of scenario planning that when i put money x into angro's company okay if it does if it goes in this trajectory we'll maybe talk to sequoia or if it goes to this trajectory we'll look for a strategic exit so they yeah. are very well trained and geared to think about exits mm. i think one thing we angels need to learn is i think we are very good at the entry but how do you orchestrate or be part of the exit process mm. i think uh, because ultimately you know if there is no exit all of this is gone down the drain so <laughs> you know you, you you've got to balance the entry and exit quite well you know that's such a good point right i mean i think for fcs or for institutional investors in general it's their game right their game is to ride it and then get out and get out with a i don't know 2 3 4 5 10 plus x right that's kind of like what their what their game is uh and you mentioned before uh for you now when you invest 
it's let's say uh, is it also three to five you said like three to five years that you're that you're in it yeah so you know what i've done is essentially i've broken my investments into four buckets of course there are the usual public markets your stocks and funds yeah. right so i won't talk about that that's I, that's liquid relatively yeah uh, the next three buckets in the private is angel. So my preference is in the three to five years. So typically I enter through a safe note, uh, you know, at, a, at an angel or at a pre-seed round. And yeah. hopefully in three to five years, if the company does well, uh, yeah, that's my horizon. Yeah. Uh, I'm at a shorter horizon. I'm also looking at, I've done a few pre-IPO deals. So whether it's Stripe, I think Palantir. Yeah. I really Palantir as well, out. yeah. Sorry. Palantir was really, it worked out really great. UiPath, it's gone public. I'm in the lock-in period. So there are a bunch of pre-IPO deals where typically it's between one to two years. Mm, okay. And of course, it's late stage, so you're not looking at a massive return, but yeah. at least there is liquidity, right? Yeah, and those uh, are bigger checks as well. Yes, uh, those are relatively bigger checks compared to Angel. But yeah. again, there are syndicates which kind of you know allow you to come in in smaller groups. Mm. So that's possible as well. Uh, and the last is, of course, uh, investing as LPs, as you yeah. mentioned. So I have participated in four VCs. So there is HealthX Capital, which does purely early stage health tech. There is Quest Ventures, which does mostly consumer web, e-commerce, yep. uh, B2C in Southeast Asia. There is one, uh, a very new, in fact, that's the one started by my mentor, Jayesh Parekh. It's called Good Protein Fund. So it's only doing alternate protein, okay, alternate wow. food, alternate yeah. meat. So that's relatively new. And the last one is an interesting one. It's called Hatcher Plus. Uh, they are a they are a VC as a service. It's an interesting one. Mm. Uh, the founder John, he's basically you know he's been a serial entrepreneur, has had exits. He's been an angel and a VC. But what he's done is he's built a platform where the technology, if you the input factor is your startup profiles and their pitch, they give you a score mm. and that acts as an input to angel investors or VCs to guide you. Uh, in terms of which investments are likely to kind of do well or not do well. Hmm. Uh, so it's a very interesting new VC concept where data-driven investments, essentially. So here, as you rightly said, these VCs typically would tell you that the fund life cycle is eight plus two years. Hmm. And, you know, they might, you might get two to four X, but you've got to hold, you know, eight to 10 years. Yeah. So those are the three private buckets, angel investments, three to five years, pre-IPO, one to two years, hopefully, and the VC, um, you've got to hold on for at least seven, eight years before yeah. you start getting any partial returns. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You mentioned something really, really, uh, really important, and I think is a is a challenge for any type of VC, right? Just to have the right deals, because like you said, maybe people are bombarding your your, your LinkedIn or your email with, "Hey, Prante, can you look at this deck? Oh, we're we're raising a pre A or whatever it is." Uh, but there's so many startups, and there's only a few which are quote unquote fundable or quote unquote, you know, real potential. How do you make sure that as an angel that you can sit at the table with the right companies? Yeah, I think it takes a lot of discipline and patience and whatever little due diligence one can do. So the process I follow really is if someone sends me, you know, I'll take a look. Firstly, it has to you know go through that filter of mine in terms of geography, yeah. industrial yeah. region. Uh, of course, helps if I know the founder. If let's say you introduce, there's a reference check mm. that definitely helps. Yeah. Then, if that qualification happens, then I would have a you know maybe a, a thirty minute or a one hour call or two or three calls just to kind of uh, understand the business plan and the pitch, but also to spend some time with the founders, right? 
and idly I try and not just speak to the main founder, the CEO, but the team, because otherwise there's too much key man risk or key woman risk on one person. <laughs> also, what I started doing is I've, I have a, a kind of a curated friend circle, a team that's generally interested in startups and the ecosystem. So usually I'll kind of pull some of these deals and on Fridays, once in a while, we have this session where they come and pitch to a broader pool of 10 to 12 people. And this group has product managers and startups, marketing folks, growth hackers, mm. finance folks. So it's, it's good to kind of, you know, get their view, right? Mm. And some of these guys, especially the product guys, I love it. They have uh, some amazing questions and feedback. And again, I'm not saying that, you know, just by doing this, I will be able to kind of get the right answer. But at least it gives me comfort as to they are able to call out the risks for me saying, hey, Prantik, if you're doing this, here are the top three risks. Mm -hmm. So at least I'm aware, right? But again, going back to Abs's point that it could be a great business, but is it a good investment? So I think that's, you know, ever since I did, did that deal with the VC, I realized I need to focus a lot more on the terms and conditions of uh, the term sheet, right? Mm. So I've kind of learned a few hard lessons. So for example, if I'm signing a safe note, it's typically a YC-backed post-money safe note. Mm. Uh, because again, the pre-money safe note has certain challenges. So I've made certain things fairly standardized. And look, if I'm doing this, it's post-money. I want certain clauses like, for example, a clause that I won't do a deal without is the most favored nation clause. That as an early investor, if I'm coming in, and let's say Andrew comes in as the next investor in the next round, and he gets certain preferential terms. Mm. If I have the MFN clause, it allows me to get access to your preferential yeah. clauses yeah. at parity, right? Yeah. So one is the terms and conditions, uh, and I have a, a good lawyer friend who kind of you know keeps me disciplined and kind of keeps my excitement at check. In fact, uh, recently a couple of deals, uh, he said, "Nope, if you ask my advice, I wouldn't do it." And I was really keen. He said, "Nope, up to you." But my answer is a no. So I didn't want to piss him off. So I said, look, cool, I'm not going ahead. But the other is the commercials, right? I think as an investor, especially if I'm coming in early, I want to negotiate what's the valuation cap, what's the discount that I can get. Uh, that's critical. I mean, you could be a great business, but if I don't get a good deal, if I, you know, it's sometimes we, you know, we angel investors make it a bit too complex with the terminology, but you just think of back in the day, if you're investing or if you're a businessman, right? That's where I wear my happy marketer hat. That look, if I'm in business, I want to make revenue or profit. So if I'm buying, let's say, tofu from you for ten thousand rupiah, I mean, as a businessman, you know, I want to package it, add some value, and I want to sell it at fifteen thousand, right? Mm -hmm. Simple. I need to make profit somewhere, right? It's got to be a good deal. So, uh, so yeah, I would negotiate in with reasonable. I mean, I also want to ensure that the founder. Uh, that the agreement is friendly. It's ultimately I've got to ensure the founder is comfortable because those guys are going to run the business. But I would negotiate on the uh, exit clauses, yeah. on the valuation cap, on yeah. the count rate, uh, on the payment terms, on the liquidation preferences. So I think these safe notes uh, they have decent enough provisions to kind of negotiate. Uh, and I would urge any angel investor because you know you're supporting a young company. It's your hard-earned money. Uh, you've got to protect yourself. Exactly. And that's a very good point because I think, like you said, in your enthusiasm or your belief or of, of, of the energy and the passion of the founder, you could say like, I want, it, I want in, I want in. Uh, but, but at the end of the day, the moment of signing, it is nitty gritty clauses, right? It's nitty gritty going down every word and 
turning it yeah. back and forth and just making yeah, sure that the, that the money is, uh, is safe. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's a reason why it's called the safe note. <laughs> and, you know, and we, and we as investors need to ensure we do our due diligence and the terms have to be really, really tight. And I, I personally would not do it without a lawyer because, you know, I'm yeah. not a lawyer. I've seen contracts, but I still need a lawyer. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, because uh, I think the the the, the beauty of, of angel stories is, of course, that they well usually when we talk about angel investments for let's say pre-revenue startups, right? We look at the early Uber days or the early let's say Tokopedia days or Grab days even. Of course, they also went around family and friends like who wants to chip in? No one believes in them. Like, what are you doing? Are you doing an app for taxis? Like, let's get out of here. Um, uh, but it's I wonder like what how would it be, right? Let's say you you put in money. Have you done any pre-revenue investments at all or, or none? It's always post. I've done one. Hmm. I've done one pre-revenue, but otherwise, uh, and that was the time I realized that, I mean, after the investment as well, I didn't feel very comfortable. Uh, so thereafter, I took a decision that I'll do, even if it's 200K, but at least some semblance that, you know, people are willing to open their wallets for the product or service. So yeah. barring one, everything's been... Oh, it's post-revenue, right? Because how can you as an angel still, I mean, you got your safe note, okay? So, so that, would your, that would be your only life buoy, right? To, to hold on to. Because if, you're, if you go in in the pre-revenue stage and then like Series A comes and Series B comes and then the big institutions come, they're going to eat everyone up, right? The whole cap table is yeah. going to be swiped up. No, that's so important that, you know, especially when the big boys come in. Uh, for example, if you don't have that MFN, the big boys, obviously, when and the, the founders would love to have any of those big boys on the table, right? And typically, I don't think you have much of a negotiating power usually. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, if, if one of those big boys want to come, you're like, wow, yeah, yeah, sure. And they know how to play the game. Like you said, they do it for a living. Mm -hmm. so they will squeeze in for every clause out there. And you want to ensure that if that's actually happening, uh, you, you know, you took the bet on the founder and the company, and there has to be some sort of advantage for you. Uh, yeah. That's the name of the game. Exactly, exactly. Hey, uh, Prantik, so looking back at, at your journey as an entrepreneur, and now uh, actually you're still building, you're still building Densu, you're still, still you know, very much involved with the, the CXM. You know, because you've walked it, the differences between, I mean, I always say that a good entrepreneur is not per definition a good investor. And a good investor is not per definition a good entrepreneur. Uh, but you've, you've, you're walking both sides, right? Um, and even though the, the angel investment side is maybe, it's still like two or three years in, right? But um, what are, in your opinion, what are kind of like key characteristics that of a successful entrepreneur and key characteristics of a successful uh, angel investor? No, that you make a very good point that one shouldn't assume that just because one's walked the path that one can be a good investor. In fact, there are many reasons why it may not happen. So I think, you know, when I look at an entrepreneur, to me, I think fundamentally the founder, again, I would go back to the founder product or the founder problem fit, uh, just their gumption, their conviction, and their ability to execute. At the end of the day, it's a cliche, but it all comes yeah. down to conviction and execution because mm. nine out of 10 startups will fail. Even the successful one will have to go through a lot of challenges. So one has to be a very good street smart operator to mm. be able to problem solve, to be, as they say, to be able to raise and race. You've got to raise money. At the same time, you've got to be racing and you know growing. So it's a, it's a very different ball game, right? It takes a hugely different skill set to, uh, you know, kind of build your brand, kind of attract talent, retain them, keep mm -hmm. them enthused. You know, you, you're building an organization, you're building a product and an organization around it, right? So the operating skill sets are paramount there. On the investment side, 
you know, it's a bit of an art and a science. One is to, like you said, to have a pulse of the trends, to have a pulse of what will, uh, you know, what's a good business versus what's a good investment, to be able to negotiate these terms and conditions in the investor's favor, to be able to kind of uh, figure out, you know, if the deal's not doing well, to be able to figure out some secondary exit, mm-hmm. right? It's a lot, you know, investment is a game of some sort of financial engineering. You're spotting, you're adding value in the process, but you also have to figure out how to exit, how to flip, right? In good or even bad cases. The good mm-hmm. ones, honestly, will figure out a way themselves. But what do you do with the middle part of the portfolio or the laggards or the worst ones? You can either let them die or can you somehow yeah. merge them? with yeah. someone else in the portfolio. Even the larger VCs are doing that, right? They're merging two companies yeah. and trying to then flip it through SPAC or strategic mm-hmm. exits. So I think the financial and the commercial acumen needed is way higher, I feel, in the investment landscape mm. as opposed to the entrepreneur landscape where you are solving problems, you are pivoting, you are building culture, mm. you are raising and racing. Mm. Mm. Uh, I mean, in with no disrespect to anyone, I think between the two, I probably have a lot more respect for the entrepreneurs. It's a hard, hard life. Yeah. Uh, uh, it's it's extremely hard. I mean, you've been there, done that. I've been there, done that. It, it's enjoyable if it ends up well. The uh, you know the process is of course it's a great learning. It's it's easy to say all of that, right? But when you're at it, especially year one to year four, year five, mm. you're dying to get that first big customer. It's it's tough. Right. Like they say in investments, it's tough, of course, you know, because there's so much investments going on. How do you get the good deals and how do you get exits? But truth be told, my heart says I'm still new to the investment game. But at the end of the day, you're throwing money at a particular problem and money is absolutely critical. Mm. But that's one dimensional. Right. Uh, Right. Of course, you're as a VC or as an angel, you're uh, ensuring employability, you're creating jobs, you're funding a trend. You're kind of growing a portfolio of companies, absolutely. But I think it takes a very different kind of personality to actually roll your sleeves, build a deal, build it. solve a product, yeah. sell, chase for money, you know, the whole life cycle. It's, yeah, yeah. It's, it's a different, totally it's different a very, ballgame. Totally different ballgame. Yeah, it's right? a very different ballgame. So what, what's your definition of a successful investment? A successful investment to me is one which leads to a successful financial outcome, which means, you know, Again, depending on the stage, if you've gone in an angel investor, first things first, you've got to figure out an exit. Otherwise, for all the heroics around angel investment, that money has gone down the drain, right? Now, mm. of course, that can be 10x, 100x, 1x. Mm. At least don't lose your money. To me, as an angel investor, if you can, you know, I, I, this is what I tell my wife as well that look, whatever little I've invested, if it comes back as 1x after 10 years, to be honest, I'll be okay. I'll not be ecstatic, but I'll be like, hey, my money in absolute terms is bad. Yeah. Pathetic IRR. But I can at least fool myself in saying, hey, you know what? Not bad. I've been an angel investor. I have funded some companies and some jobs. Not bad. Yeah. But yeah, if I lose money, that's where, of course, it will hurt. So to <laughs> me, I think a successful investor, whether you're in the public markets or uh, in the private markets, is not to lose money and to make money. <laughs> so the, the, the interesting thing, right, about PE and VC, right? The, the PE investor would say like, oh man, if we can do 2X, we're happy, right? We're, we are successful, right? We're within the VC space or angel space. Everyone is talking about 10, 100 and uh, multiply. But do you have in, in your mind, is there some, some benchmark where you say like, okay, you know what? Uh, of course, every investment, uh, you know, one is riskier than the other. But is there like a, I don't know, benchmark that you say like, I, I'm actually always aiming for at least, you know, 
5x. Yeah. No, I do. I mean, heart of hearts, the three buckets I spoke about, the VC investments over a decade, my hope is it gets to anywhere between two to three X. Yeah. It'll be okay. Yeah. Right. Uh, of course, lucky in Singapore, across all investment buckets, the tax isn't an issue, but two to three X, I'm happy. Anything more, yeah. I'm very happy. Yeah. On the pre-IPO market, I think, uh, again, two X in a year, uh, you know, from a, literally doubling in a year, that's a good spot. Palestia was a, uh, offshoot, but everything else, you know, two X to two and a half X in a year, to me, that's, uh, again, my expectation. Yeah. On the startup bucket, my view is, you know, I if anyone is uh, looking to do it, I would highly urge everyone, whatever money that you've kept aside, split it across a portfolio. You can't, there are some angel investors that I've seen who have just done two or three. Mm-hmm. I genuinely hope it works out, but the math is difficult. Mm-hmm. I would urge that if you have, I don't know, 100K aside for angel investments, yeah. do at least anywhere between, I don't know, five to eight deals if possible. Yeah. If you have a bit more, have a you know 15 company portfolio. So diversification is key, but mm-hmm. also you want to ensure that it's the same portfolio theory for the VC. You need, because the number of variables that can go against you, no matter how great the founder of the company is, it's immense. So as a portfolio, my hope is, whilst I don't want to lose money, heart of heart, my hope is, hopefully I can get to four to five X. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm okay to wait, let's say 10 years, but four to five X over 10 years as a portfolio, I think uh, I'll be good. satisfied. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm not hoping. I mean, I, I would love to have some sort of an Uber and a Google moment, exactly. but, uh, but I'm not going to plan for it. I'm not counting on it. <laughs> okay. Uh, final question, Abrantik. Final question. Um, we, uh, we fast forward into the far, far future, right? And I am Googling uh, Prantik Mazundar and uh, there's, there's nothing but a, uh, a one white page with the three bullet points. And those three bullet points are the life lessons that Prontek wants to leave the world with. Like even if I look at the Happy Marketeer or LinkedIn, it's all empty. There's nothing I can find except that one pager with three bullet points. And those three bullet points would be the life lessons that Prontek wants to leave the world with and wants to be remembered by. What would those bullet points be? I love this vision board question. So yeah, if I'm searching for Prontek Mazumdar decade, two decades later, I think my three lessons have been, one is, as an entrepreneur, or even as a you know, as a, a business owner or an employee, I think it's important as individuals to have conviction, to have your own point of view. I think many of us choose not to, uh, in the interest of being balanced or uh, diplomatic. I think you can be diplomatic, but it's important to have a conviction or a point of view on a problem or any aspect, a political issue, a sports issue, or a business issue. Mm. So that's one, having a point of view and conviction. Second one would be to follow through. I think a lot of people do not follow through. So my big learning as a salesman, as a marketing person is, you know, if I meet you at an event or at that board meeting, or if I, you know, bump into you somewhere, I think it's important, no matter how technologically savvy we become, to keep that human touch and to follow up and follow through, right? If I've said, hey, you know, I'll connect with you on LinkedIn or we'll catch up, I should do that. I should not just say it for the sake of saying it. I think it's a very small thing, but you know, especially when I see entrepreneurs who reach out to me and they say, oh, I'm going to send you my deck in a week. Uh, it's okay. They can send me in 10 days, but I want them to follow through, mm. right? So courage of conviction, following through. And the third uh, learning and belief uh, for me has been what I call myself, call uh, the, I call that phenomena, 
surround yourself with goodness wow what that really means is i think as an individual you need to surround yourself with good people with good books with even your social media field mm. uh, right social media feed you can engineer it that when you log in instead of just seeing let's say movies you could have interesting articles mm. it doesn't have to be business it could be politics whatever you like but what i've learned is the newsletters or the substack that i subscribe to or the podcast for example that you're doing if i have a system that i surround myself consciously and deliberately with good books good knowledge good people i think a lot of the eventual success takes care of itself itself right so in summary the three bullet points hopefully in the google results pages have a point of view and, a, and the courage of conviction mm. number 2 is follow up and follow through and mm. number 3 is surround yourself with goodness i love it man i love it i uh, i always want to appreciate also my guest i really want to want to acknowledge you for the fact that uh, your linkedin starts with that you're a proud father so that means in my opinion that you value family life your family family is important right and i think uh, that that should be should be uh, should be the standard should be standard and i love that from you i i really appreciate your sharing appreciate that we're we're still connected you know even though uh, we physically never met and <laughs> it's always been, it's always been virtual but i thank you so much for your time thank you for sharing and i hope to see you soon abrantik no thanks andrew i mean thank you so much for having me it's been a pleasure and on the point of family i mean especially in the last one year we've learned how critical that is i'm really blessed in a very weird way that i'm working from home because i just you know literally after the podcast i'll be back with my kid you know yeah. even if it's a 10 minute micro moment that makes a huge difference and i mm-hmm. have so much to learn from you I, i love the fact that you guys took the call as a family to move to bali uh hopefully i can my wife and i can replicate something similar soon and i promise you that once the markets open up we'll come and find you guys in bali for sure because we need to have that bali grass in the background we need to feel the real ones here <laughs> absolutely absolutely <laughs> all right pranthik thank you so much thank man so i'll speak much. to you soon Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Masters of Cashflow podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, then please share this with a friend that you think would be inspired or could learn something from this. Also make sure to subscribe to the Masters of Cashflow podcast over on Apple and Spotify. And I'd really appreciate if you can leave a rating and review on Apple and let me know what your biggest takeaway is of this episode. I want to leave you with this quote of Walt Disney. The way to get started is to quit talking and begin doing. A great reminder that there's power in doing, there's power in action, and that is my wish for you today. Thanks again for spending time with me today, and I wish you the best with everything that you are pursuing.